and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. This week's episode stands alone but also serves as an addendum to last week's focused episode on the great work of the Save the Rhino Trust Namibia. So if you haven't listened to that yet, then perhaps rewind an episode before continuing here. But what you're about to hear is two conversations with two very different men who, despite their differences, provide two vital perspectives into what's happening to and for the rhino population in Namibia. First up is Pete Batel, the chief conservation scientist at the Namibian government's Ministry of Environment, Forestry and Tourism, and is the national rhino coordinator for Namibia. And then is Tommy Hall, who works as a wildlife intelligence officer running a number of informer networks that assists both the Namibian police and the Save the Rhino Trust in their anti-poaching endeavours. Hopefully, when heard side by side, these conversations may illuminate, at least in part, the national legislative environment within which the SRT operates, as well as the manner in which poachers attempt to thwart the trust's goals. So, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Pete Batel and Tommy Hall. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Okay, so my name is Pete Beitel. Um, I'm the Chief Conservation Scientist with the Ministry of Environment, Forestry and Tourism. I'm the, the Head of Wildlife Research and I'm the National Rhino Coordinator for the country. So how, I guess the big, first big question is how does the government interrelate with the work that SRT are doing? Yeah, so um, as you guys are probably aware, all black rhino in Namibia belong to the state. Mm-hmm. Um, even these here in the communal areas. So SRT has a, a memorandum of understanding with the ministry and they have the mandate to audit and monitor the population in the Kuneni. So we have a number of custodian agreements with the conservancies around here, but SRT is the umbrella organization above that, that monitors um, the rhinos and monitors the movements and activities sure. in the area. Are they doing a good job? Well, I think the record speaks for itself. Sure. Um, As I understand it, there's 6,000 black rhino population in the world, about 2,000 of them in Namibia? Yeah, No. so it's actually... Uh, much better than that okay. <laughs> if, I, if I can brag yeah, about my do. country brag, brag, brag. <laughs> so of the world's population Namibia is currently number one in the world um, we surpassed South Africa in terms of black rhino I think it was last year um, we overtook them so we currently have about 2,300 black rhino in the country sure. and obviously the all of them are the desert adapted bicornus bicornus of that population, we, we have the biggest single population in the world in Itasha, with a th- over a thousand black rhino. Mm-hmm. We have the biggest communal free-roaming population, which is the Kunene, one with over a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw one of them this morning. Okay, that's great. <laughs> you know which one? Uh, yeah, it was a five-year-old. Um, it's yet to be dehorned to stop the poachers, yeah. so no nicks in the ear yet. But it was, uh, I think the mum was called Tuta, so Tuta 18, I think okay. is the working title. I think, I think a Texan or someone from Tucson has uh, bought the rights to name it, so I think it's going to be branded Tucson imminently, oh, okay. <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, and the reason um, it will be with a T is uh, it's part of the monitoring. All the calves are named after the first letter of the mother. Sure. We also have the biggest uh, black rhino program, um, the custodian program in the world, 
Um, that program has over 600 rhinos in it. Um, it's similar to the BREP program in South Africa, but you don't can't have ownership of offspring like you can in the BREP program. Sure. Am I right in saying that poaching is on the rise across Namibia at the moment? Yeah, so um, actually poaching started in Koneni in 2012 okay. in Namibia again after almost a decade without poaching. We did have the odd rhino poached on a private farm, okay. um, but it was a decade without poaching in Koneni. And then uh, in 2012 we had the first poaching case and it escalated from there. 2014 was the highest um, number poached in the history of Koneni and we lost 16 animals yeah. there. Do you know um, why? Yeah, I think at that stage... To be totally honest, uh, SRT and the government became complacent. Okay. Because poaching started in Zimbabwe before that and then um, spilled over to South Africa. And Namibia, we didn't have any poaching while they were losing a thousand rhinos a year in South Africa. Sure. So we did become complacent and we didn't have our monitoring up to scratch or the preventative measures in place. Okay. Um, and then when it hit us in 2012, 13, 14, we were actually caught with our pants down. We, and then drastically, we had to improve the situation. SRT increased their monitoring efforts tenfold. We started the Rhino Ranger program here. Sure. Um, the ministry... The Rhino Ranger program being getting locals from the conservancies to look after their own areas. Exactly, yeah. Because SRT as an entity doesn't have enough enough staff to cover the whole area effectively mm -hmm. with the onslaught of poaching. Before poaching it was fine, you can do your annual monitoring and surveys, but sure. um, with poaching the, we needed more help and that's when SRT got the um, con communities involved. I say we because I actually work for SRT from 2006 till 2010 okay. when Rudy was Sure, sure. Still, yeah. So Rudy being I, the uh, husband of Blythe who started SRT. Exactly, in the first place. yeah. Before you then, in turn, got poached by the government, then, I guess. Yeah, so I got poached by the government in 2010. What's it like? I mean, to move from an NGO to the government, often quite, quite often NGOs have bad relationships with the government. What is different about the, the, the Namibian government? Do they have a slightly more overt and positive action towards? the environment towards their natural resources that they have here? Yeah, I think um, also the big um, thing in Namibia is our CBNRM program and um, working with communities to preserve the wildlife. That's sure. the big difference in this country. And that's why our government works so well with NGOs sure. and we see it as a help to the government instead of opposition. We do have our odd NGOs that we don't get along with, sure. but SRT from its um, inception in the 1980s till today has been a big ally for the government and we've worked closely together. Am I right in saying the Namibian government was the first government to have the environment written into its, uh, yes. into its national laws? Yeah, that's correct. And um, currently almost 70% of Namibia is under some form of protection, environmental protection, either conservancy, sure. national parks, etc. Namibia's only got two and a half million people in it. Do you think you'll be able to keep that percentage ratio of environmental space as the population starts to grow and as American and Chinese influence comes in for raw resources and the likes. Yeah, it, it will be difficult, but the big advantage we as a country have is that the majority of the country is a desert. Sure. So it's inhabitable. <laughs> it's, it's, a good, it's a good trick <laughs> out your pocket. Isn't it? Yeah, so it's mostly in, uh, uninhabitable. Um, <laughs> so that's the advantage we also have, which very few people actually think about. But the northeast is... One of the areas it's growing the fastest currently, sure. um, population-wise, and that's where the Chinese are also harvesting timber at the moment. Uh -huh. <laughs>
And it's also near the Nyai Nyai Reserve, which is <coughs> another rhino territory that I think Asati are about to go into too. Yeah, so they're actually already in there. They started the, the expanded the ranger program over a year ago. Mm-hmm. And we have um, rhinos in a, it's, they, those rhinos are in an enclosure, but we want to also introduce them into open system. Sure. So what very few people know in Namibia is that the Nainai Conservancy has the most rhino out of any conservancy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Tora, Kwadiwas, all these conservancies actually don't have as many rhinos as Nainai do. The difference is they're all in one camp. Okay. Are they also, is there a greater number because it's quite wooded up there, it's quite foresty? The habitat is... Are they better hidden and people can't poach them as easily or...? The the area is very sparsely populated, Uh even though it's in the northeast. And you have the traditional Zunwasi Bushmen staying there. Sure. It's a very small population. I think the whole conservancy is 800,000 hectares. And I think there's about 2,000 people mm-hmm. living okay. there. So that conservancy with Nainai Conserv- uh, Najatna next to it and the Kaurum National Park to its north is ab- about 3 million hectares of very sparsely populated, mm-hmm. pristine habitat for rhino. That's why we're targeting that area as our next big move to get rhino into an open system and sure. increase the numbers. Because our strategy is, um, look, we'll never be able to stop poaching sure. for good. So uh, the ministry strategy is to outbreed the poachers. So as long as we have a positive growth rate against offtakes and we can push poaching le- um, levels down, uh-huh. it's a win for us. Am I also right in saying that the government wants to use rhino, hall as a, uh, rhino horn as a resource to sell, to make money for the government? Uh, no, that's not. That is not true. No, that's not true. Okay. Um, w- look, we store all our rhino on in our stockpile, but it's not destroyed. It is kept. It's, it's not destroyed. It's kept. Okay. Because it's still uh, a valuable asset, and for us to burn it like they did in Kenya, uh, just wouldn't be fair to the population. But so we what will act- you do with it then? No, w- we'll look at what happens um, to the markets. Maybe there's at some point um, legalization of a once-off sale, like we did with the ivory. Sure. But at this stage, we're not pursuing the idea of selling rhino. Okay. Um, we're just basically storing it. <laughs> Are you based in Winterk in the capital? Yes, I'm at the head office. But you're headed somewhere interesting now. Yeah, so um, the most northern uh, subpopulation in Kunene is the Okongwe population. Um, there's two bulls in that area. One of the bulls um, has decided he needs a female and he walked north. Sexy. So he's about 100 k's from the Kunene River now. Okay. Um, and the area where he is in is a uh, um, potential threat area um, where we have lost rhinos and he's all on his own. So we're going to try and retrieve him on Friday and then bring him back to the concession. How do you know he's there? He's been spotted by rangers or...? Yeah, so the, the rhino rangers um, from the Puros Conservancy is tracking him. Okay. They're actually on his spur. Um, I actually just asked Andrew for a recent waypoint. So we, our trucks are on their way, um, so they will sleep close to the rhino um, tomorrow okay. and then Friday morning we'll go in with a helicopter, immobilize it and crate it and bring it back. Okay, you will crate it, you won't do that amazing thing where you suspend it from its four legs and then... Yeah, we have done that in the past in Kunene, where we, when we initially with our range expansion program moved the rhinos north, mm-hmm. um, we had um, hired in a super UE and we airlifted them. But our helicopter doesn't have the it's capability to... strong enough to lift two tons of rhino. <laughs> yeah, and it's very expensive to hire those helicopters in. Have you decided which region he's going to parachute into and who the lucky lady rhino could potentially be? So we're going to drop him um, 
in the Alp area, close to the Alp Canyon. You sure. guys probably came past Yeah, me. we came through that. Yeah, and hopefully you can pick up one of the, the Barab ladies there. <laughs> what a lucky young man. <laughs> yeah. And we're also going to fit the satellite unit in his horn so we can track his movements after sure. he's released. Literally, so you'd like dig a hole in the horn and then insert it? or? Yeah, so we, we drill a hole on the side and we put the set unit in and we seal it with dental acrylic. Okay. Same that you use for false yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's already been dehorned to stop the poach or to dissuade the poachers? Yeah, we dehorned him. It's a long time now. It was three years ago. Um, How often do you do that? So our dehorning program... Obviously, we did it in 89, 90, till 94, when Rudy and Blythe were here. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually one of the first countries to Dion. Um, is it working? Yeah, I would say it is. Look, it's one of the tools that we use. There's yeah, yeah. a lot of tools like community involvement, which SRT does very well. And that's why it's working so well here. So every two years, we got cabinet approval in 2014. And since then, every two years, we've been deorning throughout the country. So Kuneni is up next year again. We did last year. Sure. Um, and we do all the small parks and custodian farms um, on a two yearly basis. Sure. Obviously, Tasha with over a thousand rhino is much different. It's going to take a little while. <laughs> so there we target poaching hotspots. So if okay. you know they're coming into the southeast, for example. I actually just came from an operation a week ago. We were in there with helicopters and we deorned a hundred rhino in one of the corners where they are poaching. So you pop in with the trank gun, take them down and then go in with a hacksaw and take off their horn. Yeah, so <laughs> that's a bit um, harsh. <laughs> yeah, we we use a, a reciprocal saw. Um, a lot of people use a chainsaw. Sure. Um, but we, we find a reciprocal saw is much safer. Yeah. Um, and after we've cut the horn off, we um, use a, a grinder with one of these hoof grinders for oh, horse yeah. hooves, and we just grind the horn um, oval shape. So if you see a Dion, freshly Dion rind, it looks like it has no horns. Yeah. But obviously, it still has the stump there, which we yeah, and it grows back yeah. pretty quickly. Is there a concern that their defense mechanism has gone? That the rhino is, I mean, they're a huge animal and their natural predators are few and far between, but like, is there not a concern that we're limiting their... No. Um, look, we, we actually just brought a paper out um, with an intern from SRI through Kathy Dean. Mm -hmm. um, she wrote a deawning paper. So we looked Let's at... Save the Rhino International. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we looked at the impact of the awning on four populations, one in Kunene and then throughout the country, even the 901 was one of them. Sure. And we found no negative impact with a sample size of over 80 rhinos that sure. we looked at. And the rhino, even without the awning, is still a fierce yeah, I creature. Especially <laughs> yeah, Especially black rhino. Yeah. Okay, a more personal question. Has it always been rhinos for you or is it another form of wildlife that you prefer? Is it just because I'm asking you questions about rhinos that you're talking about? Yeah, rhinos? no, um, it is a, has always been rhino. I grew up in conservation. My father was uh, the previous director, one of the previous directors. Mm -hmm. um, him and Rudy and Blythe were very close friends. Um, so I was always involved in conservation. And then I did my master's degree at Stellenbosch. Okay. Um, and it was actually on these rhinos. So I studied Kunene rhino and tracked them um, with horn implants, um, 26 of them. And Rudy helped me a lot there mm -hmm. um, to work with the SRT teams at that stage. So since then, I haven't looked back. And black rhino especially, um, because they have attitude. Yeah. And they're all individuals. No two rhinos are the same. Do you remember seeing your first one? Yes. My very first one um, was actually in a crate. Because when I started uh, my studies, I wasn't allowed to be involved much. I was <laughs> on the back of the vehicle. And when they released the rhino... 
it was actually the start of the range expansion sure. um, out of the concession. So we moved two rhinos to Quadi West, the Clip River, just uh-huh. here at Grootberg. And uh, the first bull is, was HO. So I remember standing at the door and Dr. Morkel, Pete Morkel was the vet, and we had um, a strap in front. So we would walk out semi-tranquilized uh-huh. and then we'd use the strap to wrestle him to the ground and then remove the crates and wake him up. I remember standing next to the door and I could just see him coming out and I, my eyes just went <laughs> and I thought, shit, this is a live rhino just here and he's awake. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do and I just screamed, grab him, grab him. And <laughs> so that was my very first, and he was actually one of my study animals as well. So I approached him on foot a number of times after that. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like knowing that people from within SRT are handing over to people within SRT to people who are then handing over to people in the government that can only be a good thing there's a there's a through line of yeah no of intention yes and um, yeah SRT is always will be a, a soft spot in for me and yeah. I'll always support them um, because I know how hard they work because I worked with them yeah. and the dedication they have to what they're doing are you unique in government no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, there's a lot of other rhino enthusiasts like me. Sure. Um, I just happen to come from the SRT background. Sure. Yeah, and it, uh, currently this population is a big worry for us because of, Andrew probably told you, the nine-year drought they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, so this population has gone from 200 when I left because of good rains mm-hmm. to just uh, under 130 now. And that is the combination of poaching and a nine-year drought. Um, and that's an example of how easily with rhinos, because they're such a long-lived species, things can go downhill and then yeah. it's difficult to turn it around. But through SRT's dedication, luckily the last two years, the first years, um, in a while that they've had positive growth. Sure. Um, so the curve has finally started to turn. The thing that I found quite interesting, and it's a correlation of two things, it's the sort of the rain drought cycle which is about i don't know five to seven years you get a good five years a bad five years a good five years bad five years but then also the the rate at which a rhino reproduces is again between five and seven years like yeah. the calf will stay with the mother until the mother chases it out and then yeah. they'll get pregnant again and they'll and it takes a little while That's and if you add then poaching to that yeah. um and what the poachers did here when they came in they would target um, cows with calves because they would go to a spring and they would take the double spoor mm-hmm. because it's two rhinos. And invariably you would lose three rhinos at a time because that cow would be pregnant as well. So with one poaching event you would lose three rhinos at a time. And that is what set this population back. And then you, after the poaching was brought under control you had the severe drought where you lost all your calves and your old animals. Mm-hmm. And from there it's very difficult to come back. So it's going to take SRT and this population another couple of years to, sure. and good rains hopefully. Well, we had rain today. Yeah. I mean, not much, like 0.002 millimeters of it, but it's the last thing I expected when I came to a desert. So. Yeah, and but now this damn westerly wind is blowing again. Mm. I remember staying here at Maigua, um, waking up and you'd see the rains on the horizon, and then they never quite make it over to the Canaanite. <laughs> they can't get over that damn mountain. Yeah. <laughs> In the afternoon, the west wind blows them away. <laughs> My name is Tommy Hall. I'm a consultant to um, Save the Rhino Trust Fund. My title that I've got is Wildlife Intelligence Officer. Mm -hmm. And I'm responsible 
collecting of information in this northwestern area where the free roaming rhino are. Sure. And um, with the information that I've collected, uh, I pass that on to the appropriate police units. And the police units are the guys that then do the investigation. Obviously, I help them with the investigation so it goes smoother and that um, things go, as I said, faster. And it's led to many arrests uh, on, on rhino poachers in this area. What's your background? Were you military? Like, what are you? What were you? I have background. I'm a Namibian, sixth generation here. Yes, we all had to do compulsory military training at that time. That was before independence. We all fell under the uh, South African government. So we all um, had to do military training. I ended up most of my time in the cavalry. Okay. And um, I was in Angola with cavalry as well, with the horses and that. And then I came back. We still had to do military uh, service three months until the age of 45, 50. And uh, then they found out that I'm fluent in a native language. Which is? Uh, it's Tamara with the mm-hmm. clicks. But I can understand uh, the Haikum Bushman. It's a lot of similarities, just dialects are a bit different. Mm-hmm. And I'm fluent in that and then um, I was asked to go into the intelligence. I did six intelligence uh, uh, courses, sure. qualified up to the rank of captain. And I've used that intelligence mainly with uh, setting up informers and things like that okay. to, to get um, information concerning rhino poaching and things like that. Was rhino poaching and the natural history of Namibia something you were interested in before you left the army intelligence to go into no, rhino intelligence? No, not at all. Um, Do you like animals? That's a good <coughs> question. Of course I like animals. Um, how can I say... Uh, I wanted to become a conservation officer, but I didn't have the funds to go and study or to do a diploma. Okay. But there was a chance that you got employed by conservation, and I did 81 courses on conservation-related uh, uh, courses, and I did them. And then uh, law enforcement came in there, and everybody else was doing their thing and on, on uh, game and management and that. I also did management, but part of management I did then law enforcement. I did a couple of courses on law enforcement mm-hmm. and it interested me uh, very much. And then I found that I had some skills in doing investigations sure. and I've been very, very successful as a conservation officer to do investigations mm-hmm. and if I can blow my own trumpet Please do there. blow your trumpet. <laughs> yeah, um, I've, while in conservation I've withdrawn three cases where I didn't have enough uh, evidence but I've never lost a case in my entire career of 18 years. 18 years. So where does it start then? Do you 
st how do you gather information in the first instance to stop poaching rigs? Very intriguing uh, uh, question, actually. You know, if a, if an animal is poached, you most of the time find a dead animal. You find the bones. In the case of a rhino, all the time you just see uh, the rhino horns removed. Maybe here and there they will cut a bit of meat uh, uh, from the rhino. Mm -hmm. And then, as Namibia has only a few people, the areas are very, very big. We um, have weather conditions. So if a rhino is like a week old or a little bit older and things like it, it becomes a problem to find tracks for the dogs. It becomes a problem mm -hmm. to follow the scent and then things like it. So you've got to be somebody that's very keen in doing detective work. Yeah. And I don't think there's any detective in this world that can do his job if he hasn't got informers. Everything goes with informers. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like to try and solve the crime after the crime is almost impossible because of the weather conditions and the, the chances yeah. of finding a, a rhino carcass out there next to zero. And that so. is very, very difficult um, as well. But then um, if you've got a very good informer uh, system and you recruit your uh, informers well, mm -hmm then um, the informers start bringing uh, valuable uh, information. Yeah. So is it just money? How do you get a good informer on side? How do you make someone want to betray potentially their friends that and is, family? That is one problem I've detected quite early in my uh, career. And I've got this motto, if you hand out peanuts, expect to get monkeys. Sure. If you um, hand out good money, the person, you never really know if that person's been involved or not involved before. Sure. And he will start thinking twice about, is it easier to um, go into a place and poach and be caught and go to jail for maybe 20 years mm -hmm. or you've got to pay thousands of, of Namibian dollars to uh, uh, to get out again or is it easier just to split on somebody and take easy money and the thing is once you do that and there is a protection way how you protect the informers you never give your informer to anybody mm -hmm. and how you meet and, and, and things like that and if that is successful that informer then starts working for you they start trusting you now yeah and then if you've got a mutual trust there are a, a few things that you as a, a handler or the person that gets information sometimes You've got to let go of a, uh, of a case sure. and with that person. And then you've got to find other means to get to that. You've got the you've information. You've got the information, yeah. but you don't want to give your informant over. No. So, and so I guess that's my in question then is, is, and it could be across the board, but where does your informer sit? Is it the person who knows the person who knows where the rhino is? Is it the person who knows the person who's going to go and kill said rhino? Or is it the person who knows the person who's going to go in and take the horn and ship it out through whatever route it leaves the country through? Like, do you have people across the board or do you target a particular point in the chain? Is there a weakest point, for example? I'm not going to answer that 
uh, complete because if I of do course. this now, yeah. then it's like giving the game away how I get to it. Mm-hmm. But yes, it can be people that are sitting at a drinking place. That's where most of this stuff starts. Sure. They uh, sit and drink and then they've had a few drinks too much and then the one guy starts talking and says, okay, um, I need a vehicle. I want such and such a vehicle. And then you would say the only way we're going to get to that money would be uh, to poach a rhino. And then they start talking and then the other one says, yeah, but I will join you and I also want to cut in this thing. And then they will start at the drinking place. They will sort of isolate themselves, buy more views and start uh, uh, planning the halting. And then it will be one guy's got to organize the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And who's going to transport them? Is there a, a trustworthy driver? Then the next thing becomes a rifle, sure. a appropriate rifle. Um, they hardly uh, use licensed uh, um, weapons, uh, rifles. It's most of them uh, stolen stuff or unlicensed uh, uh, stuff. Then also they organize who's going to be the person who shoots. The rhino, they've got... Pick a short straw and... Yeah, they make sure because uh, you often find that guys take their own chances and then uh, they shoot about four, five, six rounds into the rhino and the rhino runs away and then ends up at the water point in that and then they get caught out. And then also that has made investigating officers who have not got enough experience will say ah this thing was used shot automatically look all the rounds that were in there Mm -hmm. but then the scene of crime where it would be like 50 meters by 50 meters can then extend up to two three uh, uh, kilometers because where the first shot was shot and where the uh, rhino state that halting becomes in the scene of crime because along the uh, road there is blood there might be another empty cartridge or whatever and those are the things then that they start organizing and they also have one person who does intelligence his function is go to that area find out all that you know about the movements about the police Uh about uh, say srt people and that and then um, very innocently they will make friends it can be a tour guide even, that one uh, uh, case that we investigated was a tour guide. And the uh, uh, tour guide was in this uh, syndicate and he knew that these guys do rhino tracking. Uh-huh. So he took guests down there and he said, hey, help me, these guys uh, want to see a rhino. Nobody knows who's who. They might have seen each other and say, oh, he's okay, he's a tour guide. Sure. And then they go and show the guest uh, the rhino and that, and this guy looks, okay, I've seen these two rhinos, uh, they do the own, we're not interested. And then he will come again and then again, and then one day he will buy this guy like a, a beer or something and talk. And then, like the last case, he would say, you know, how do you know that the rhinos there? How do you know how to do in that? And then this guy thinks he's got a friend and then yeah. he talks everything he knows about the rhino. So that's what he then used. And then the other thing 
what this informer, this intelligence guy has to do is they go out and look where all the spots in the mountains where there's network sure. and they communicate all the time. Do you think that the combination of intelligence officers like yourself, the NGOs like SRT and the government are winning? Or is poaching on the rise? Definitely yes, because... Definitely yes, you're winning, or definitely it's on the rise? Both, both, both actually. And it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain why. The poaching was rife 2012 it started, and it started ascending 13, 14, 14, 15 and 16 was highlight. Mm-hmm. It was the, the, the poachers were really, really uh, um, decimating the, the, uh, I think the rhinos. I think said that there were 16 that were taken in Canaani alone at that point. One six. Yeah. I think. yeah. And uh, then when uh, the Blue Rhino police unit was uh, formed and they got uh, trusted police officers, hard-working police officers, guys that never stood back and said it's five o'clock we're going back they would work the night through and in particular the one uh, police officer that I'm working with I know if I tell him we're going to work the whole night through and the next he's got no problem and and it's really great to work with a person like that and all his mates are like that and then um, 2018 took a sharp decline 2019 was sort of the lowest that we um, ever had and then it was quiet but that quietness some of us read it is uh, a lot of the guys had uh, been jailed and because the dockets and things weren't finished and, and on time and stuff and you can't keep a person unlimited in, yeah, in jail. Yeah, I heard there were a few people that were kept in Oh, in jail for a year before they went to trial and then after a year their lawyers got involved and just got them put straight back out again. That is what's uh, uh, happened and if there's not enough evidence uh, put uh, together and that yeah. then these guys and what these guys then uh, did is they went back but in that lull of the time these guys started reorganizing sure. but really reorganizing but who are the poachers it's just not the, the the guys from other countries that are coming in here which a lot of the local people think it's not that there's a lot of people who seemed like if say if there was a river or across the border everyone blames the people on the other side of the river for for doing the, the horrible things it's not us it's not us over here it's, no it's, it's those guys no some so you think there is a native Namibian problem with the poaching then? Some of the, the, the poachers to start off with are ex-police uh, uh, officers okay. who know everything about investigation and what is looked for and what is not looked for and how to hide uh, the evidence that will link him to the rhino. Sure. They are ex-military, the ex-South African military, the ex uh, military uh, guys from uh, Angola and other guys who have got a hard life and want to have it easy and, and uh, sell yeah. the uh, rhino horn by killing the rhinos. They are part of uh, uh, the people. And then what I often say when they say it's always the, the foreigners and, then, and also what a lot of the people say it's our tourists. 
Then I asked this question, how does this tourist know where the rhino is? Mm -hmm. You can't just come in into an area, even if you've got 10,000 hectares, go in there and find the rhino. You're going to walk around about 10 days, 15 days yeah. before you get. But these guys know exactly where to go, to which fountain to go, what to do. Two, three days, they shoot the rhino and then they're out. Yeah. So there is a lot of uh, involvement of local people of Namibia that are in it. Sure. And business people that are in it. Yes, that... It's the foreigners who buy this stuff, yeah. who encourage uh, uh, the salting. The demand, yeah. The, the demand for it, yeah. So do you go in with the sting operations? Are you part of the people on the ground who grabs the people, or do you just provide the intelligence to...? I'm supposed to be just providing the, the information, but I've seen in a couple of the, the operations that they miss the whole thing. So, um, as in they're too slow, as in there's a leak and information gets out and so they go to stop people and there's nothing there to so stop? Often it's uh, officers that don't know the area, it's often the officers that don't know because a name can mean this, but it could be somebody else. Sure. Say for instance a name, uh, oh, where is Tommy? No? Mm -hmm then they would say, no, we, we don't know Tommy. But Tommy might have by those guys the name Dog. And if you would say it is Dog, then they would know, and maybe you're even speaking to him yourself. Sure. Yeah, and in cases like that, the way that I've worked, I've got two agents that are well known, and they work with me, and they are my assistant investigating officers as well. And we go as a team together with the sting operation. Sure. And in many cases in, in the sting operations in, in, in the past, um, I had such a good understanding with a police officer that the police officer would come and say, okay, you lead this uh, sting operation, we will do all the work. And then I would sit down with him and say, okay, this is what I want to do. And then uh, the guys would say, yeah, that's a good idea. And what I've done with them is when you, for instance, ambush a vehicle that is not coming, mm -hmm. there are certain things that uh, you've got to do, certain things you've got to be aware of. And then when you stop that vehicle, it's like human nature. Everybody runs to their closest door, but the other doors on the other side uh, open and those guys normally uh, run away. Mm -hmm. So what I then would do is I will take my vehicle and I will select the guy and I will say, you are responsible passenger seat. You are responsible for the seat behind the passenger. Mm -hmm. And then I will uh, post them out in, in places. I will bring my vehicle, I will stop and then I time them. And then they've got to run towards the door and the, the, the things that they say and that and how they open. And the record that we've got is 15 seconds, five guys handcuffed. Wow. And it's because everybody knows exactly what they sure. do. It's like a planning a rugby team together to exactly. do the right move at the right time. Yeah, and if you do the right move and that and you do it well, you bring the shock into the, the poachers. Mm -hmm then there's no violence or anything necessary. Treat them like humans, and we've got a lot of information out like that. 
Do you then try to squeeze information out of the people that you get? And do they often give you further leads, or is that There thinking? is a method that um, I worked on. I've got a questionnaire that I've drawn up myself. And then usually I start the guys, who he is, his ID. I get all that information. I get the information about his brother, his sister, mother, father, all that. That's valuable information. And then all their cell phones. And at that stage, they're so keen to give that away mm. as long as they don't come to their real uh, thing. And then if they then one day run away or anything like it, you contact those people. And you can find them again. Yeah. It, not always will they give it away, but you can uh, find, you will know where he stays and how he roams and that. And then you start um, easing him off a little bit. And what helps by me is I usually have a, a little tin of Coke just to bring your sugar level and then all that. And then you just talk normally to him. And then, and then it's important right at the beginning not even when he's at the police station, right there, you sit with him and then you talk. You obviously find the weakest link and you start talking. Then also once I've been charged and they've been in jail for a couple of weeks, I go back, I ask permission and then I speak to the guys on a normal tone and that. And what is interesting for me is why did he, yeah, why did he do it? But I ask him about tactics, mm -hmm. what tactics? What kind of logistics do they use? How do they plan these things and all that? And once you start understanding those things, mm -hmm. you know when you do your investigation or when you do you know your operation. You know where to look for and what to do and the right questions that you ask. Are you a target? I don't know. The only thing that I do know is it angered me a little bit, but then I'm uh, laughing. My vehicle is so well known in this area. Mm -hmm. I am so well known because I'm the only white person amongst the, the black people. Sure. Some of the women very far up, if the children don't listen or don't want to eat the food, then they say, we're going to call Tommy. And then they <laughs> say, no, no, no. And then they start eating the food and things like that. Sure. So I have to laugh about it because now I've become like the, the boogie man in yeah. this year. And in, in that, but on the other hand, I feel I've become a deterrent because if they know I and my team are in the area, a lot of the people move out of the area uh -huh. and they back off whatever they've done. And that is for me, um, it's always better to solve the problem than to try and cure it. And meaning sure. a dead rhino is no use to me, but a live rhino is much more use. Do you get information that could help quell the demand? Do you, because if, as long as there are people wanting to get the rhino horn, they're going to be people motivated to kill rhino to get the product to sell it to raise the money. Have you ever come across any information that you felt could have made a bigger difference in the overall picture rather than the individual sting and the individual survival of each rhino that you've saved? It's a very, very hard question to answer. I've Sometimes when I'm driving to get to places, these are all the thoughts that are in my mind. But then you've got to look at other facts. Who are really the people who want that money? It's two types of people. You've got the guy 
that's in poverty, has got no other way, he's helped himself to poaching and eating meat, mm-hmm. and that is understandable because they are really, really poor. Then these guys see other people driving expensive cars, having everything and their life is easy where they've got to tend to the goats. They've got to eat only that maize meal that uh, that they can afford mm-hmm. and then things like that. Then you've got the problem uh, uh, area of the rich people. The more money you have, the more money you want. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what the value of rhino horn is. No, go on, tell me. Tell you a little story. The first rhino poacher that we caught, I had a long interview. We, if you saw us talking, you would think we are the best of buddies and we're talking of interesting subject. Mm-hmm. But I got him so far uh, to talk to me and I said, what? happened why uh, uh, did you purchase him he said well i'm not gonna mention names here or a ethical group i'm just gonna say it's a rich person this person had a shop up north and this guy used to come and buy his um, normal thing and then he would go and he would turn around every penny and then one day this guy said you can take this thing bring me the money back later on And this guy got into debt. And then one day this guy said to him, look, do you know where there are rhinos? He said, yeah, I know. He says, bring me a rhino horn. And then your debt is finished. So this guy went and he looked around and it was the easiest thing under the sun. Mm -hmm. He went and he shot the rhino, took the horns and he brought the horns to him. And the guy said, your debt is finished, here's 800 Namibian dollars for a pair of phones. He told me he took that 800 and then that night he had so many friends. They That's drank. about 40 British pounds. Mm-hmm. That's about 40 British pounds, 800 Namibian dollars, is that about right? Yeah. Which obviously goes a fair way over here. Yeah, it does, but like I said, this yeah. guy had many friends that evening and they drank all that money yeah. in, in, in the barn, everything, yeah. yeah. And then he said, well, if it is that easy and nothing has happened, he went back and he shot another rhino. But this time he went to this guy and he said, I don't want 800, I want 1,500 Namibian dollars for it. Uh And he got that money and it was easy for him again. So he went back and he shot another one. But this time he sidestepped that guy because the stories were going on. He went to a guy that he got more and then he got 10,000 for it. So that started encouraging Mm -hmm. him. So when the, the rhino poaching then started escalating and the guys were being caught, the price of the rhino horn rose as well. Sure. And at times, I think at the moment, a team will get anything between 30,000 to 80,000, the team. And then they take the rhino horn and they will sell that rhino horn to the middleman 
and they will get something like 400,000 for it. And then it goes higher and eventually if they get it out of the country, it can go up to a million. So it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Why do you do it? Is it a job? Is it a calling? Like, are oh, you going to... Why am I poaching? No, no, yeah. no. Why are you stopping the poachers? Um... Like, are, are you going to be able to retire? Do you feel like there's someone who's going to come in and replace you and do your job, or...? It's actually a little bit of an unfair question, that. I've been asked that question many, many times. Uh-huh. First of all, yes, I like the rhinos very much. The second thing that runs parallel with that is inve- doing investigation. Every rhino investigation is a challenge for me and I sure. like challenges and it's a passion for me. Uh-huh. If I start going on, on a case and I've got um, a good police officer with me, I don't let go until I get you. I won't get you tomorrow, I won't get you next week. I won't get you next month, but one day I will get you. And that is the best reward that uh, I can get. Money is nothing to me, but that is my best reward. When I've arrested you, I've got enough evidence against you, and I know you're going to sit in those four walls there. That's the best reward for me. And I can't leave it. I'm still fit. I know a lot of guys are saying you're a grandfather, and that, yes, I am a grandfather. But I've got a lot of experience and I don't share everything that I have Mm -hmm. because I still need to make a lot of successes. Mm -hmm. But if I can get a person that I can trust and it doesn't matter who he is, I will gladly pass on all the skills that I've got, how to do it, when to do it Mm -hmm. and things like that. And there's a young... Uh, a police officer that I'm looking at. Very good guy. Fantastic. Tommy, thank you very much. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.